All right, let's take the Word of God together and go to John 15, John chapter number 15, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 27, John 15 verses 18 through 27, and we'll be considering this morning the subject or the topic, remember the Word, remember the Word. I want to draw your attention to verse number 20. We'll begin with just this verse, and then we'll go back through the verses as our Lord is speaking here. Verse 20, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Very simply, Jesus tells his disciples, Remember the word or remember his word. He's speaking more in what's to come. He's reminding them that in the days to follow, remember the word. Of course, there had been many things that he had spoken to them. There are many things he'd already said to them. But I believe and we'll see as we go forward, Jesus is instilling in them when these things come, specifically when persecution comes, remember the word. Around this text in verses 18 through 27, the phrase or the word if is used. You'll notice in verse number 18, as the Lord makes a series of if statements, in verse 18, he says, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. In verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken unto them, Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works which no none other man did. Remember, all of these phrases of the Lord, these if statements, are surrounded in what we learned last week about the divine choice of God. And we looked at that in depth last week, how those who God has chosen in Christ can expect these things to take place. I really want to deal with three main thoughts today. First, we want to deal with the thought, those chosen by Christ will receive persecution by the world. That's verses 18 and 19. In verses 20 through 22, we'll look at those chosen by Christ must remember the word. And then thirdly, in verses 23 through 27, we'll consider those chosen by Christ will never reject him. So three main ideas or three main thoughts as we look at this text. And Jesus again telling them, remember the word. Verse 18, Jesus makes mention of the world. And he says this, if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. There's a direct connection between those that are in Christ will be hated by the world. Now, the word world here is not just a reference to the secular evil world that we think of. When we were, if we were to make the statement, uh, the world out there is wicked and evil, that would be a true statement for the most part. But if we were to also say he's not just speaking about the world that we think of, the secular evil world, he's also speaking of the religious world. You have to remember that the greatest persecution that Jesus' disciples would face would be from religious people. Not from Rome as much as it would be religious people like the Pharisees. So when we see if the world hate you, 
Remember, they hated me first. The religious leaders of the day hated Jesus. They hated what he claimed. They hated that he said that I am the bread of life. I am the Messiah, which was promised. Now, the disciples, no doubt, as they've walked through with Jesus and he ministered to them, they had already experienced the hatred of the Pharisees. They knew what it was to have the Pharisees hate them. They had heard about the Sadducees. As, as Chase was reading this morning, he was reading about the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection, and they were coming, and they were challenging. And Jesus, he, he says, why are you tempting me with these things? So Jesus is telling them that after this hatred takes hold, And after this hatred delivers me up to the cross, after I'm gone, you need to keep this in mind, disciples. The hatred that they had for me is now going to move from me onto you. You're going to experience the hatred because they hated me first. The disciples of Christ will always be hated because they're not of the world. They will always be despised because we belong to he who they do not belong to. We should not be surprised if the world hates you. You shouldn't be surprised if religious people hate you because they hated Christ first. Men don't hate their own gods. Men look at their own gods and they say, we, we love our God, but we don't love your God. We want nothing to do with Jesus. As a matter of fact, there are religious people who will agree, we love Jehovah but we despise Christ. It's impossible to love Jehovah and love God. It's impossible to love Jehovah and hate Jesus. They don't go together. Jesus had told them on numerous occasions that there are those who would fill or fit that particular description. Back in John 5, 16, Jesus said these words. He said that, that therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Remember, the, 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 the Jews, the Pharisees, wanted to persecute Jesus for doing something good on the Sabbath day. They were religious people. Over in John 7, verse number 1, Jesus said, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. So we often read this text in John 15 and we think about the secular world. Jesus is telling them that your greatest persecution is not going to come from the secular evil world. Your greatest persecution is going to come from people who are religious. The Pharisees, the Sadducees. So those in Christ will receive persecution by the world. We understand that if the disciples were hated, It's fair to apply today that those of us in Christ, we will be hated as well. But then look at verse 19. He says, If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. We are in this world, but we are not to be of the world. We're different from the world. We're different from the, in our character and our attitude. We're different in our affections. What we set is our objectives. Jesus tells them, if we were like the world in those things, the world would love you. If you want to be loved by the world, then you'll be like the world. But notice what Jesus says. But I have chosen you from out of the world. Therefore, because I've chosen you out of the world, the world hates you. I've chosen you, Jesus says, out of the world 
in order that you might know me, that you might love me, that you will walk in my word, you'll do and submit to my will. Just like the world hated my words, they're going to hate you. We're told in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, as Paul was writing to Timothy, he makes mention, and this is a, this is a declaration that every believer needs to come to grips with and understand. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul, as he's writing to Timothy, says this, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If you are in Christ, there is no way that you will avoid persecution in some form. Now, many of us would never sign up for that. We would never say, I want to be persecuted. Yet, Paul, as he wrote to Timothy, reminds us that we will suffer persecution. Our very existence as being one of His, our manner of life, the message that we preach condemns the world. That's why the world hates his disciples, and they hate Jesus. You've heard it. I've heard it. People say that Christianity is nothing but a message of condemnation. And in some part, that is true. It is a message of condemnation. Without the saving grace of Jesus Christ, man stands condemned because man is, in fact, guilty and deserves condemnation. You and I today, apart from Christ, deserve to be condemned with the rest of the world. Apart from Christ... We have nothing. That's why he said, I've chosen you to be out of that world, but understand they're going to hate you. That's why in verse 20, he says, remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. I'm afraid in our Christianity, we somehow think that we should have it easier than Christ had it. The disciples believed it. They, and that's why he had to tell them that. He had to remind them, remember this, you don't have it better than what I don't expect to have it better. That's why they ended up martyred. They ended up dying for this faith. They ended up following the same path, although they could not redeem. They died for their faith. But he says, those that have been chosen in Christ must remember the word. Remember the word, he says. If they've persecuted me, he doesn't say they might. He says they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake. And here's the key. Because they know not him that sent me. These religious persecutors who, who will persecute you, who will hate you, they don't even know he who sent me. Who is Jesus referencing? They don't even know the Father. The Pharisees believed that they were worshipers of Jehovah. But what Jesus is saying, your persecutors, they don't even know him. Again, religious persecution. Jesus trying to comfort his disciples during this time that will come. He's reminding them that when, you, when these days come, remember humility, remember self-denial. Remember, he's talked about brotherly love. Remember how many times he said, love one another? He wasn't just saying that to say, hey, let's just be loving and kind for the sake of being loving and kind. Because what's coming, you need to experience and make sure that these things are true. Humility, self-denial, love one another. 
Listen, what Jesus took on for us, he didn't deserve. The persecution that he faced and the hatred, he did not deserve it in his, in his person. And yet, look what he was willing to suffer and die for. For us to sit here today and think we can escape persecution and that we are somehow greater than our Lord, our, our, our attitude needs to be, I should expect persecution. Why? Because Jesus said all that are in Christ will suffer persecution. You are going to experience it. Their hatred, the world's hatred, for me, compels them to hate you. When you see the anger and the rage towards Christianity, true Christianity, you don't have to ask the question, why do people hate Jesus? He already gives us the answer. He says they'll hate Christianity because of me. Now, you and I as believers today, we can't fathom hating Jesus Christ, or I hope that's the case today. We can't even fathom how can you hate Christ Yet he says that's the very reason why they're doing what they're doing. You don't have any reason to be ashamed, but you have all the reason to rejoice in this hatred and this persecution. Again, a mystery of God. Back in the book of Matthew, chapter number five, if you'd like to turn there, Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. This, this subject or this, this principle was, was taught here. Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Again, this is part of the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, which again, that is not an evangelistic message per se. It is a message that was given to believers. And in verses 10 through 12, Jesus says this, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Notice he says, even when they say manner of evil against you falsely, even when they lie about you, even when they slander you, rejoice. Why? Be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. All of this world hates Jesus because they do not know the Father that sent me is what Jesus is saying. Back in John, look at verse 22. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. This contextually, accurately, Jesus is speaking about the sin of Israel. And what he's saying about Israel, he is saying, had I never come through the prophets, through the promises and the covenants, they could not be held accountable for their disbelief. So by following that, they have no cloak for their sin, their sin of self-righteousness, their sin of, of pride. If I had not come, then they'd have an excuse. But here's what he says. But now... They, that's Israel, have no cloak for their sin. They have no excuse in rejecting the Messiah that sent me. They have, no, they have no excuse rejecting me as the Messiah, rather. They have no reason. Why? Because the prophets had told them about this Jesus who would come. Jesus is saying, 
I had, my, my, my coming was prophesied, my coming was certain and sure, and they have no excuse for their disbelief. In the book of Acts, chapter 3, verses 25 through 26, Peter speaking here, he, he condemns that very thought of what Jesus is saying here in John 15. Acts 3, verse 25. Peter says this, Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. That verse in Acts is connected directly with our text in John when he said they have no cloak for their sin. If Jesus had not come in his incarnation, in the fulfillment of the entirety of the law and all their prophets, with the undeniable proof that he was indeed that promised Messiah, they would not be under judgment for their sin. But he has come. Just as he said, the prophet said he would, and now they have no excuse. Isaiah 53 has been that classic understanding that if a person said, I don't believe that Jesus Christ could possibly be the Messiah, Isaiah 53 puts the entirety of that argument to rest. If you only had that one chapter in the book of Isaiah, you would have enough proof in Isaiah 53 to declare that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Yet to this day, the majority of Jews deny the existence of Isaiah 53. They will scan right by it and say, that's not Jesus. That's not Jesus Christ. They have no cloak for their sin. And then this third thought that Joe's chosen by Christ will never reject him. Notice what he says in verse 23. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. He continues this thought. If you hate me, you hate the father. It is impossible to know, love, and worship God while rejecting and despising Christ. It's impossible. If a man hates Christ, he hates the Father. God the Father and Christ, by his own testimony, are one. John 10.30 and John 5.23. We've studied those verses. Jesus Christ said, I and my Father are one. So if you hate me, then you hate the Father. The hatred of the world then. Who does the world, when he says the world hates me, who does the world, secular, evil, and religious, who do they really hate? According to Jesus' words, if you hate me, then you hate the Father, you hate the Son, and you hate the Holy Spirit. You are a hater of God. It's impossible to love one and hate the other. In this 24th verse, if I had not done among them, this continues kind of the thoughts that he had already said about not having cloak for sin in verse 22. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin, but now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. Jesus came and declared through the supernatural, came and declared through the works that he had done. The hatred of the religious Jews is now without any possibility of excuse. They had not only heard, they had also witnessed with their own eyes. They had seen this Jesus. 
He had plainly revealed, I am the Jesus of Nazareth. I am the Messiah. Their sin of unbelief, that sin of unbelief further aggravated this, what Jesus had revealed. In other words, they saw it and they disbelieved. Now this prophesying of this hatred, notice in verse 25, but this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. What Jesus is saying here very clearly is that this hatred and this rejection, this was prophesied about. Even David, even David in Psalm 35, 19 is referencing to a time when the Messiah would be hated. Psalm 35, verse 19, if you'd like to turn over there. Psalm 35, verse 19. David says these words, let not them that are mine enemies. Now remember, David is, is a, a, a type of Christ. He's a, he's a picture of Christ. Let not them that are mine enemies wrongfully rejoice over me, neither let them wink with the eye that hate me without a cause. Jesus is saying that these prophets that came before me, they were pointing to me as being the fulfillment of the redemptive work. Listen, the hatred of man towards Christ resulted directly in the crucifixion of Christ. In other words, the hatred of man was required, the hatred of man towards Christ was required in order that Jesus would go to the cross. And without the cross, you and I couldn't be saved. Now think about that for a minute. We look at the hatred that the Jews gave towards Jesus. We look at the hatred of, of the Romans. We say, I wish all that hatred would have never happened. Here's the theological truth here, folks. Had there not been a hatred, there wouldn't have been a cross. There would not have been a crucifixion. Had there not been a crucifixion, there would not have been a redemption. Had there not been a redemption and atonement for your sin, you would be hopelessly lost. That hatred was required. And yet, the guilt rests upon the very people who God used for His purpose to accomplish His purposes. Go back to the sovereignty of God. God ordained that there would be men that would hate Him in order that His purpose might be fulfilled. Put it this way. What exactly did Jesus do one time Name one time that Jesus did something that would gave them cause to kill him. He, he went from place to place performing miracles. He, he, he did nothing that would make a, a group of people say, we hate him. That's why he said I was hated without cause. You see, we understand today that we think, boy, these wicked people, they just hated Jesus without a cause. There are people today that hate Jesus without a cause. He's never wronged them. And they say to you, I hate your Jesus. And you ask, give me an example of why you hate Jesus. They don't have an answer for you. He's never done anything wrong to them. And if they come up with an answer, it's usually something flippant like this. Well, he doesn't give me what I wanted or he allowed something bad to happen. 
Had he not permitted and ordained something bad to happen to his son, there would be no conversion. There'd be no salvation. You understand that today? He ordained all that. Yet people still today hate Jesus without a cause. You hear people all the time. They say things like, I don't, I don't want to hear the preaching of that Jesus. Why? What has he ever done? What has he ever done to make you hate, or make you hate him? Yet people hate him. It's kind of like hating somebody you've never met. Have you ever, and let's just be honest today. You don't have to answer me. Maybe this is just therapeutic for me. Have you ever had an opinion about somebody that you didn't really know? And you say, I just don't like them. How do you know you don't like them? What, is, what did they do to you? Well, a lot of times they said or did something you didn't agree with, so now you just hate them. I don't like them. You have one piece of information about them and you draw a conclusion that because they're this, then they must just be bad people. Yet Jesus gave nothing, hated me without cause. So where did the evil, where was the evil residing? The evil's in man. See, man doesn't fully conceal, doesn't fully understand how evil he really is. Man's sin is so evil, it will hate a Jesus Messiah without cause and put him on a cross. That's how depraved man is. If an innocent person was condemned to die, there would be an outrage in society. You cannot take that man's life. It happens in capital cases all the time. This is not about the death penalty. Don't leave with that idea. But people will say, there's not enough evidence to convince this, convict this man. This man should be, he should receive a governor's pardon. There's an outrage. Yet Jesus Christ dies a death without any cause at all, all based on false charges, by the way. And man says, well, he deserved it. The world says that. Followers of Christ don't say he deserved it. They say, no, I deserved it. Everything Jesus got, that's what I still deserve. I don't deserve the blessings. I don't deserve even the assurance of knowing that I'm in Christ today. I do not deserve that. So you don't hate Jesus today because your eyes have been opened to the truths of who he is. Verse 26, but when the comforter has come, I don't think the disciples at this point, and we could disagree on this, I don't think the disciples knew any idea why they really needed a comforter, nor did they fully understand why, what a comforter would be. See, there are a lot of people that have made the disciples out to be theological giants who said, oh yes, the comforter. You're sitting, with, you're sitting with Jesus and he's telling you about, remember my word. He's telling you persecution's coming. They're going to hate you. And then he uses in the midst of all that, he says, but when the comforter is come. Now you see in your Bible, the word comforter is capitalized, which acknowledges that this is deity. But notice Jesus doesn't just say a general comforter. He says a comforter whom I will send unto you from where? from the Father. I'm going to send you the Comforter from the Father personally, even the Spirit of Truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. He gives the very reason why the Comforter is coming. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is coming to testify of me, Jesus Christ. Why would that bring comfort? Because the Holy Spirit of God would remind them 
of his words. Right? When you are going through something, when you are struggling spiritually, words are brought to your remembrance. Those are not coming from your intellectual reasoning. reasoning. Thus, the Holy Spirit of God reminding you of the words that Jesus has said. When you're going through a time of grief and the words of God come flooding back to you, that's the Holy Spirit comforting you. Listen, you don't need amazing demonstrations of flash-in-the-pan activity from the Holy Spirit. You want to know the reality of the Holy Spirit, folks, and some of you haven't experienced this yet, is when you're going through the deepest valley and it's the Holy Spirit of God that comes and reminds you, remember my words. You don't need a demonstration of big flash and powerful. You just need it when you're going through the valley. God has proved himself more real to me in the valley It's not that he's not real in all aspects, but God has proved himself over and over again more to me in reality when I'm going through difficulties. Because I have a tendency, and so do you, to lean on yourself in your own happiness. You don't think you need him then. But when the valley comes, where do you think that comfort's coming from? It's coming from the Holy Spirit. I've had people call me and say, listen, can you go comfort so-and-so? And And I'm like, I'll go talk, but I can't comfort them. I said, God can. And if they're in Christ, the Holy Spirit will comfort them. Why? Because he said, I'm going to send a comforter who is going to comfort you, sent directly from the Father, and he's going to tell them something. Remember my words. That's why Jesus is looking ahead and he's telling them to remember something Because when it comes, this is going to be your only source of hope. When the Holy Spirit has come, he will bring my words to remembrance. He shall take the things of me is what Jesus, he's going to testify of me. What things did Jesus testify of? His wisdom, his righteousness, the justification, the redemption, substitution, the satisfaction, eternal life. The Holy Spirit's going to show you all of those things. And we understand that he is never going to glorify himself. We see over in John 16, verses 13 through 15, Jesus uh, says these words in John 16, beginning there in verse 13. And this is going a little bit ahead, but he, he says, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide unto you, guide you rather, into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. Who's the he? The Spirit of truth. That's the Holy Spirit. When he comes unto you, he's not going to talk about himself. Now, listen, the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity, but he never speaks of himself. Please get this. There is so much emphasis on the Holy Spirit doing it for himself. He says, I'm only going to speak of him. He shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. There's the the role of the Holy Spirit right there. Whatever has to do with me and from the Father, he's going to show you those things. A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. 
Notice what he says there in verse, that, that verse. A little while you shall not see, and again, a little while and you shall see me because I go to the Father. So Jesus speaks very clearly about the comforter that would come. And then back in our text in verse 27, he simply says this, and ye also shall bear witness. We talked about this in the first service today because ye have been with me from the beginning. What is a witness? A witness is one who testifies and speaks and preaches what he has seen. He speaks, especially here in context to the 11, we understand the contextual and how important that is in expounding Scripture. You and I do not have, did not have, and will not have the exact same relationship the disciples had because they were with him while he was in human flesh. It is impossible for us to completely recreate that. I mean, if you come to me today and you say, I was, I was sitting around a fire with Jesus himself today, I'm, I'm going to have you checked out for some problems. He's not in his human form here on this earth. But we do have this. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not speak new words. He does not speak things that are outside of what the Scripture has already said. So if you're being told something that doesn't appear in the Scripture, it's not from God. It's not a new revelation. It, it, he's saying the words that I want you to remember are the words which have already been declared from the beginning. He's even telling his own disciples, be careful of what you hear and remember this, that the only thing you're to speak and to remember is the truth which has already been declared. We bear witness of Christ's love for us. As we've talked about over the last few weeks, that electing love of God, even as we spoke more clearly on that this morning. So what is Jesus saying by way of application? Very clearly here, that the reality of the persecution of these disciples, Jesus is clearly declaring here that no man, apart from the choice of Christ, would willingly choose to receive persecution for a God he didn't love. In other words, if you didn't love God, you would never die in the place or die for him. You wouldn't die for your faith. Jesus knew that every one of them that were sitting there were going to die for the faith. You and I have no idea what kind of persecution is coming our way. I say this almost, week, almost weekly. You're going to get tired of hearing me saying it. Right now, we are in such a safe zone, it's frightening. Now, I know you think we're being persecuted for our faith. You and I have not seen anything yet, okay? If you think it's difficult to be a Christian in America, I don't know where you're living. Because honestly, compared to other places in the world, it's not difficult. It's hard, but it isn't what some others are experiencing, all right? You say, what, are you telling us it's coming? Yes, I'm telling you it's coming. When is it coming? We're not told. But all we know is he says, remember the words, remember my words. It came for them. You say, this is, that, this is where you're just kind of manipulating our emotions. I'm just telling you that Jesus says those who live godly in Jesus Christ will suffer persecution. It may be a varying level. We may be out of here before the real persecution ever happens. We may, that may be generations from now. We don't know. It may not be a generation for two or three, we don't know. 
But we do know this. He does say that those who live godly will receive persecution. One commentator put it this way. I didn't notate it. I wish I could remember who it was, but he said, only those whom Christ chooses will accept persecution. That's a pretty deep thought. Only those whom Christ chooses will accept persecution. If he doesn't choose you by his electing love, you won't accept persecution. You'll run from it. You'll say, I don't want anything to do with it. To remember his word, remember what we've been learning, remember his word and to abide in Christ and abiding in Christ always produces fruit. We've learned that over the last seven weeks. We've been in John 15, I think, for seven weeks. And yet, those who are abiding in Christ and in Christ, they will produce fruit. It goes together. The love of God and producing fruit, the choice of God producing fruit, it's all connected. Now today, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. And why we do that, it is a time of remembrance. It's a time to remember his words, but also a time to consider all that he does for us. Again, not so that we will be happy here, but that so we might remember his great sacrifice. Now, we remember something that took place. We remember his, his passion. We remember his sacrifice. But folks, don't let the Lord's Supper become uh, a, a funeral in the sense because of what he did, it leads us to rejoice as well, okay? Because if we constantly mourn it, we're still, we're, it's like we're putting him back on the cross. And we do rethink about it, but we also look forward saying because of what he did, remembering his words means that there is a brighter glory to come. So we observe the Lord's Supper together in order that we might remember what he has done. We remember his words, but do not forget the reality that Jesus Christ is coming again for his children. And that's our hope. We could observe the Lord's Supper today. We do this monthly as a church. This could be the last one that we observe here. Once we're with him in glory, we won't have to remember and observe it anymore because we'll be with him. So I hope we'll keep those things in mind as we move forward today.